I'm setting a I'm setting a timer to make sure that we end on time. One Ottawa. So yeah, we, we have a limited amount of time that we want to try to abide by. Uh, but as Addie was saying, like this is our last day with you guys. And uh, while we're excited to be back home with our kiddos, we're going to miss you guys a ton because we believe in you guys a ton. And um, how many of you know Philip and Amy Ward, right? You guys are YWAMers, so you kind of have to know them. It's like a contractual obligation, right? What'd you say? Amy speaks next week. Okay, so if you don't know Amy, uh, you will know her very well by the end of next week. And just mentioning prophecy and the power of prophetic words, Amy has given us some very incredible prophetic words that have really marked and shaped our lives and our ministry. And so I'm jealous for you guys that you get to be back here in this tent next week with the prophetess that is Amy Ward. So uh, she was mentioning like, oh, you know, we're leaving this the last day. It's so funny because every time we hang out with Amy, she always tries to convince us to move here. And uh, it's like every single time that we hang out with her, she's like, please. The, I mean, and she is so convincing. She's like, the missions movement needs you. Like, you have to move to Kona. You have to be a part of YWAM. And so I'm like, keep praying, sister. Right now, God's called us to plant the local church and uh, advance the kingdom of Jesus in that way uh, in Nashville. But I just wanted to say, Allison's going to kick off our time today. You think I should? What for? I feel like that's what the Lord's saying. All right. Well, that's fine. We can do that. Of course, yeah. That's totally fine. But, um, yeah, all that to say, we feel like part of the family. So I just want to say thank you guys uh, for welcoming us into the Fire and Fragrance family. Uh, it is so cool when we see uh, you guys outside of this context somewhere else in the world. Believe it or not, that happens more often than you would think. So, like, we'll run into uh, people from the DTS all over the world, somewhere doing missions, somewhere doing uh, ministry. So we're really excited for the next season of your life. Uh, I don't even know if this was originally planned for us to speak the fourth day, but I kind of, I guess, invited us to speak today. So uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry, right? My bad. Um, but we are really excited to spend this last day with you. And what we thought we could do was just continue on in this whole message of doing ministry together as a family. Did you guys get anything out of that yesterday? Was that enjoyable at all for you? For how many of you guys was that like, whoa, this is mind-blowing. I've never heard anything like this before. Okay, so about half the room. Awesome. Uh, for the rest of you guys that didn't raise your hand, hopefully something God will speak something to you today that will set you on a new course to really invite people into your life to a new extent to experience covenant community so that everything you do from here on out in ministry or missions takes place within the context of kingdom family. How many of you guys want family? Yes. More than anything aside from Jesus, right? 
to have an amazing family. I think that's one of the reasons why we have that natural craving in our heart to ask questions about marriage, that curiosity about covenant and finding our spouse and having kids because God has designed us. He has put a drive and a desire in us to create family wherever it is that we go. And how many of you guys know that takes incredible intentionality? You ever heard somebody say, man, you know, I would go to church, I would do missions, I would go to YWAM, but, you know, I just believe it should be organic. Okay, so nobody but me. All right, so you know what I'm talking about, though? You're like, they're talking about church and community. Like, man, we just want organic, bro. Just want it to be organic. You know, we don't want that manufactured stuff with all those ministry programs and all of those things that I have to do. I just want it to be organic, dude. I don't know if you know this or not, but organic farming is way more complicated, way more administrative, way more institutionalized than normal farming, okay? So, like, everything is the same. The work is the same. The only difference is the substance or the seed, all right? So it comes from a different origin. And so if we want to do organic family, we want to do organic relationship, we talk about things being natural, things being organic. Let me let you, let you in on a secret. Just because something's organic doesn't necessarily make it easier. If you want organic relationship, organic community, organic family, it's going to require more effort, more work, more endurance, more perseverance, more sacrifice on your behalf to cultivate family within ministry, then it just happened naturally because we're all in love with Jesus and each other. I wish that that utopia existed on this side of heaven, but I think we're going to have to be patient to experience that after Jesus comes back or we die and go to paradise with him. All right? On this side of heaven, it's going to require some work. Why is... Uh, why is doing ministry as a family so difficult? That's a question that we get asked quite a bit. And I want to go after that kind of as we kick off here. The reason why doing ministry as a family or missions as a family is so difficult is because we live in a culture that is very, very different than the culture that Jesus lived in. Okay, so we live in a westernized, commercialized consumeristic, individualistic culture. This is extremely different. I mean, it's as far as the East is from the West, quite literally. It is an extremely different culture than the culture that Jesus grew up in, lived in, and did ministry in. I'm talking extremely different. Almost no similarities. Whereas we over here are radically individualistic, which is what we call a weak group society. Jesus' culture, on the other hand, was radically familial. And it was considered a strong group society. Okay? So in our culture, the strongest bond we have is with our spouse. Right? Aside from the Lord. Right? In our culture, the strongest bond we have is with our spouse. In a strong group culture, the strongest bond you have is with your siblings. Okay? So, this is, I know, it's already kind of going to throw us for a loop here, right? Because you're thinking, no, I should sell everything 
you know, I leave and cleave, which is obviously biblical. The spouse is the primary relationship. But for a first century Christian, for somebody who lived in the day and age of Jesus, for the spouse to be the primary relationship would actually be quite offensive to the mindset of a strong group society because to keep the family intact, your primary relationship wasn't your spouse. The family wasn't divided every time somebody got married. The family stayed intact. The family stayed strong. The well-being of the family stayed healthy as a result of the strongest bonds being made between siblings. Okay, I know this sounds a little bit crazy, right? But... You have to consider the type of culture that Jesus did ministry in. And we also have to consider the type of culture that was taking place in the book of Acts. When we read Acts chapter 4 and we see that all believers shared all of their possessions. They were selling their houses. They were selling their yachts. They were selling everything that they owned. And they were taking the income and laying it, at, laying it down at the apostles' feet. And there was a distribution taking place and everything was shared so much so that there was no poor people among them. Now, how many of you guys think that's awesome? That's awesome, right? And that is a strong group society where the relationship of the siblings, the brothers and the sisters, took precedence over other relationships in their lives. This is why it is so crucial that when we read the early um, early church scriptures and you see Christians calling one another hey brother hey sister what you have to recognize is that the bond that they're alluding to is extremely stronger than the bond that we're communicating when we're high-fiving each other like what's up bro so in this culture the bond between siblings was the most powerful bond in the strong group society so can you imagine the revolutionary commitment that took place in the early church whenever the young Christians began to relate to one another as brothers and sisters? Essentially what they were saying is, is that the relationship that we have with one another, united through the blood of Jesus Christ, is the strongest relationship that I'm going to have in my life and in my world. That means I fight for you. I may fight with you, but I'm also fighting for you. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody in here, you have siblings? Most of us probably. How many of you guys, when you were kids, you were like, you would fight with them at the drop of a hat. You would, you would be mean to them. You'd argue with them. You'd punch them, but let somebody else punch them. And it didn't matter how mad you were at them five minutes before, but if somebody attacks one of your siblings, you're tightening up your Nikes. You're taking your shirt off. You're like, what's up? Okay. You think you're going to fight my family. That ain't going to happen. I can fight them all I want. But if you think you're going to fight them, you're about to get a bloody nose. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so what you have to understand is that when we look through the lens of Scripture and we examine the first church and we look at them interacting with one another and calling one another brothers and sisters, what they were alluding to is a bond that by and large we as westernized, radically individualistic Christians, we know nothing of. So when we talk about getting in touch with, you know, the early church and the book of Acts and how people lived, 
we're talking about a radical paradigm shift in the mindset of how we see our lives as well as how we see our ministries, our organizations, our businesses, and our covenants. The strength of those covenants, guys, were so much stronger than the flippant commitments that we tend to make today quickly, right? So we live in a society today that is called a radical individualistic society. This is a term from social scientists. And let me define what it means to be a radical individualist, okay? So really hone in on this because this is probably going to be a bit eye-opening, okay? Here's what it means to be a radical individualist. We have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group. Our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of any group. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because when you think about it for our culture, as well as for your own experience, let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you put the needs of the group over your own personal dreams? I mean, let's just make it real, right? When is the last time that you were willing to put the long-term health of any group you belong, your church or your family, your community, when is the last time you were willing to put the long-term health of that group before your personal calling? You guys are quiet. Is this hitting home or are you guys just a little hot? I mean, when you think about that, it ought to come as a shock because the way in which the early Christians lived is a radical indictment. To the way that we live today. Because if you put it into our context. I can almost guarantee you. That the way in which you were taught. Whether intentionally or simply as a byproduct of our current culture. Is that my dreams. My ambition comes before any group I am a part of. My calling. My goals. My anointing. I got to look out for number one. You ever heard that before right? I got to take care of myself before I can take care of anybody else. I got to put my own oxygen mask on first before I can put on the oxygen mask of the person sitting next to me, right? Like in our culture, in our day and age, we are radically individualized by our society to such an extent that we constantly and incessantly gauge every single one of our decisions on the basis of what is best for me and very rarely, probably never, on the basis of what is best for the whole. So if you want to talk about doing ministry as a family, what we're talking about here, guys, is a radical paradigm shift. You guys getting anything out of this? From radical individualism of putting my calling, my ambition, my goals before the well-being of the entire community. Because in Jesus' time, it was flip-flop. Is this scaring you guys yet? It's, 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 it's a little scary, and I understand that. But when we live a 
radically individualistic lifestyle, here's what it leads to. It leads to leaving and withdrawing rather than staying and growing up. Okay, uh, I heard somebody say it like this, is that things that live stay, things that die constantly travel. And I know that's going to sound a little ridiculous because we all travel in here. I travel in here. You travel in here. We're missionaries. That's kind of the name of the game for the ministry that God's called us into. But I'm not necessarily referring to your frequent flyer program. I'm talking about the difference between a tree that is rooted and grounded and bears fruit through any season. Everybody say alive. Right? And the difference in that and tumbleweed. Sort of moving through dusty roads every single time the wind blows in a different direction everybody say dead because that's exactly what it is living things growing things thriving things fruitful things stay grounded they stay rooted they stay planted in a family in a community even when the wind starts to blow they don't move on to the next best thing to where they can go to a new place where nobody knows their sin but they stay connected to the community where they are known for who they really are and they can be seen and recognized for who they really are and celebrated despite their faults. In that kind of environment, that is an incubator for radical personal growth that allows you to build the kingdom within you much stronger than the kingdom around you. When the kingdom around you gets built stronger than the kingdom within you, that's a setup for toppling over and failure. But every time we leave on the basis of my calling, my anointing, my dreams, my goals, they're not letting me do what I want, therefore I am leaving. I got to go to a new place where I haven't blown it up yet, or I haven't made a big mess yet. Where I can get people's trust very quickly. I've got to go to a new place. You know, and we have a lot of Christians who do this. And they sort of go back and forth to the next place to the next place. Because nobody is recognizing their gift. But what they really need to do is go against the grain of the cultural climate. And get planted and rooted where they can grow from the inside out. This takes incredible humility. And um, for us, you know, obviously for us as local church pastors... I, I, I can tell you this, that we have consistent conversations with people who are greatly affected by this mindset of being a radical individualist. And uh, most people who come to our church, and I, I would venture to say anybody who wants to do ministry as a family, most people who hear that for the first time are going to get very excited and they're going to say, yes. This is what I've been dreaming of. I want to be a part of a family where I'm accepted and celebrated, not just tolerated. This is great. However, when they are confronted by the reality of what it actually takes to do family, so many decide that it's no longer worth the effort and they eject. Doing family is amazing on Instagram, right? It's like, it's awesome. You see the pretty, polished edited photos as we present the best version of us to the world. I mean, guys, I love to share testimonies and stories of my family on Instagram. We post pictures that have been taken by a professional photographer where my kids are all cleaned up, 
They're in their, their Sunday best. Their hair is decent. They don't have yogurt all over their shirt. My daughter doesn't have nail polish all over her cheeks or food in her hair, right? Like we're presenting our best self. But in reality, 10 minutes before that photo shoot started, our kids were a disaster. Our house was a wreck. You guys get what I'm saying? Doing family, really doing family is, is giving people the permission to come into your house when it's not polished and perfect and prepared for Instagram. It's allowing the real version of you to be known, right? Family is messy. And we mentioned this yesterday, but family is about belonging and becoming. Everybody loves the belonging part, but it's the becoming part that is much more difficult. You can achieve a culture of belonging in the company of siblings. You can feel that you belong as you are around people who accept you just as you are. However, you cannot create a culture of becoming with just siblings. You've got to have moms and dads. You've got to have parenting. We could just do belonging and hope to make you feel safe with siblings, but we'd never build a family. We'd build an orphanage. And since our goal is family, we've got to help everyone become who, are they, who they are called to, to become and that takes discipleship, i.e. parenting. We can never forget that the root word of, di uh, of, of discipleship is discipline. Yeah. Right? Like when you sign up to be discipled, you sign up to be disciplined. So one other thing that I'm going to talk about and I can pass on to you if you like. Um, so in our context, this, this context of being radically individualistic, we don't typically attend church for God and the church family, but for God and me and my family. We don't typically join a ministry or link up with a community for God and for the community. We link up with the community for God and for me and my family, right? It's very individualistic. It's very much about our needs. It's, it's very much about us. So uh, let me give you guys... Let me give you guys a, a bit of an illustration uh, and a story, and uh, maybe it's it's a little bit more modern, and I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. I want to refer to the Titanic a little bit, okay? Have you ever seen the movie The Titanic? It's kind of a classic, right? I mean, it's such a classic, in fact, that just recently we were talking about the movie The Titanic walking around H&M, and I turned a corner, and there was a Titanic t-shirt for sale on H&M. I'm like, what? This is definitely God speaking, okay? So... There's a reason that I'm using that I'm using this, and it's it's you know it's a different day, it's a different culture, but but um, I'm using it as an illustration for a reason. In the in the in the first century church, there were three things that early Christians didn't have to pray about. They are this vocation, location, and their spouse. I'm gonna get to the Titanic thing. Just saying. There's three things that, that, that each person in the early church didn't have to pray about. Vocation, location, and their spouse. What is the three things that causes us the most anxiety today? Vocation, location, and spouse, right? What's your job going to be? Where are you going to live? And who are you going to marry? Okay, so in a weak group, you guys get anything out of this right here? It's a little interesting, isn't it? 
So in a weak group society like we have here, in a radical individualistic society, in a westernized understanding, the three things that cause young people the most anxiety is what job you're going to take, what career path you're going to take, where are you going to live, right? Where's God calling me to go? And who am I going to marry? Right? I mean, depression, anxiety, loneliness, stress, fear. I mean, we're pulling our hair out over these three things. Now, as an early Christian, these three things were not decided by you as an individual. These things were decided by the group. I know, this is a little creepy, isn't it? It's a different way of life. So you have to understand, when we read through the scriptures and we look at when the church was a family, you have to get this, the culture is radically different. Your vocation was chosen by your family because you did what your parents did. So whatever your dad did, guys, that's what you did. Whatever your mom did, that's what you did. Whatever your grandmother did, that's what you did. Whatever your auntie did, that's what you did. I mean, it's not that you could never break out of the expectation. It was just so common that the understanding was, I do what I do to preserve the well-being of the group, not to preserve my own personal well-being and my own personal ambition. So the reason that you did that job was not because you were a slave to your family, but because it was the best way possible to preserve the well-being of the whole. Because you made your decisions on the basis of your career as to what would bless the family the most, not what would bless you the most. Right? Location. We pray about this all the time. What city are you calling me to, God? Where is it that I am supposed to go? Where am I supposed to move? Can I tell you guys this? A first century Christian would never pray that prayer. It would be, I mean, it's not, maybe, maybe never is too broad of a stroke to paint over it. But listen, it would be so rare for an individual to say, God, where are you sending me? Uh, you know, maybe it would happen from time to time for a male. It would almost never happen for a female. That's the type of culture that they lived in. It's very different, right? Because you went wherever the family went. Because you were protecting the well-being of the whole, not trying to cultivate your own individualistic calling and anointing, right? Spouse, the same way. The person that you would marry. Now, I know this is incredibly scary for us, but I think that we could actually learn a little bit from this culture to detox from some of the anxiety and the pressure that we put upon ourselves to choose this perfect person, right? Because in this day and age, the way in which they decided upon their spouses was on the basis of what was best for the whole. Now, I know for us, we're like, that's absurd, that's ridiculous, but the truth is, you know, I was a missionary in India, and guys, when I would have my morning tea in India, I would always have an English newspaper brought to me. I was the only, like, American or Westerner in the entire village that I lived in, and so they knew that I liked to read the English newspaper. I got to know what was going on in the world, and they'd bring me the English newspaper. Now, in that newspaper were classifieds of women and men looking for a spouse. I know, this sounds a little absurd, right? Because you're like, what? You're telling me that people ran an ad in the paper saying that they were looking for a husband or a wife? Yes, I'm telling you that is exactly what was happening 
and it was extremely normal and not weird at all. And you know who ran the ad? Their parents. Not them. It's not like Tinder. Right? It's not like, hey, I'm on the market. I'm looking for somebody. Hey, I'm available. This was the ad that their parents would run, and they would give their details. They would say they're this tall, this complexion, they have this degree. And essentially, they were setting up this interview process to find, uh, to find a spouse for their child. Now, for us today, we look at that, we're like, that's absurd. Why would you ever marry for the benefit of the whole? We marry for love. Right? Then why are their divorce rates equivalent to ours? This is something to think about, isn't it? I don't, I don't feel like this is going over very well right now, but... Yeah. So, let, you, you want to go to the Titanic example now? Okay, let's go to the Titanic. Okay. So... I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing these parallels not because I'm, not because I'm suggesting we should do the same, okay? I'm not saying that your mom and dad should run a classified uh, for you to get married, okay? So don't hear me suggesting that. Right, yes. But yeah, let your parents help you, for sure. That'd be a great idea, actually. Um, so how many of you guys have seen the movie The Titanic? Okay, a lot of you guys. Okay, so love the movie The Titanic, right? Can we all agree? that Rose should have scooted over just a little bit and made some more room for Jack on that door because they both could have lived and easily survived that. That's point one from the Titanic. They both could have lived out a long and happy life, married and connected with one another, right? And so when you look at the, when you look at the movie, the Titanic, I, I, I saw the Titanic in the movies, okay? I was just a kid. I've watched it a few times. I even cried. I think Titanic was the first movie I ever cried in as a kid, all right? And so if you guys remember the storyline with me, you've got Rose, right? And she is from the upper echelon of society, right? She is the upper crust. She is rich. She is well-to-do. She's got it going on financially. She comes from this real bougie family, you know, but... There has been a tragedy happen as of late in Rose's family. Her dad has died. And so with her dad dying, her family's fortune and well-being is now in trouble. Because in that society, uh, you know, the patriarch was a big deal, right? And this is just 100 plus years ago. And so Rose is set up to be married to this guy who is a creep, right? Do you guys remember this story? Okay, for those of you that don't, I hope I'm articulating it well. So there is a setup that has taken place, and Rose's family has said, okay, you're going to marry this guy. Now, he's not very nice to you. He's not actually in love with you. You're not actually in love with him, but it's an arranged marriage that we have set up to protect the financial well-being of the family. And so in order to preserve the future status of this family, we're going to need you, Rose, to marry this guy that you're not actually in love with and he's not actually in love with you. But we're going to arrange this marriage, and this is going to happen because it's going to protect the long-term future success of this family. Okay? 
Now, we have Jack, right? Young Leonardo Di DiCaprio. And we, he is a handsome dude. There is no doubt about it. I think we can all agree on that, right? And Jack is, he's from the bottom rung of society, right? He is just a street kid who somehow luckily ends up with a ticket to board the Titanic as a result of winning a card game. Do we remember this, right? Okay, so he somehow makes it onto the boat, and we'll never forget the scene in which, you know, Jack and Rose meet, and it's almost like love at first sight. They're up on the bow of the boat. You know, he's holding her. She's flying. It's romantic. We're all watching it. We're on the edge of our seat. We're like, oh, this is the best. My marriage is going to be just like this. It's going to be awesome. We're going to meet, and in 15 minutes, we're going to fall in love. He's going to draw me pictures of me. He's going to write me poetry. Bring me cookies at work. It's going to be the best. Right? And so when we watch this movie, guys, because we are from this radical individualistic society, when we watch this movie, we're watching those scenes where Rose is listening to her mother, and her mother is making a passionate plea, stay with the man that we have arranged your marriage with. The well-being of the family depends upon this union. The long-term success of our bloodline depends upon you marrying this man. Now, when we watch this scene, right, we are shouting at the screen. Don't listen to her, Rose. She's trying to screw over your happy, perfect life. Leave your mom. Who cares about your mom? Go to young Leo. So hot. You have real love with Leo. Jack, Jack, Jack. You know what I'm saying? Like the whole theater is like, screw her. Right? Now, we know why Titanic is a hit, right? Because Rose chooses Jack. And we, in a strong group society, we love this. For us, oh, sorry, weak group society, we love this. Because despite the fact that Jack dies of hypothermia and drowns in the ocean. This story, it's real love, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, right? Despite that terrible, god-awful ending, we love this film because Rose chose real love, right? Rose chose what her heart wanted most. And when the movie ends, if you watched it in the theater, I watched it, you guys probably like four when it came out. But I watched it in the theater, and people are sitting there stunned by how impactful and moving that this movie was. Like, they didn't even want to leave. Like, the credits are rolling. I remember, like, my grandmother went with my mom, and they both had to carry each other out of the theater because they were weeping. That's a true story. Okay, now I want you to imagine that this same exact film, somehow, some way, we could go back in a time machine and show this movie to first century Palestinians. If this movie was being played out in Bethlehem in the time of Jesus, they would be throwing tomatoes at the screen. 
they would be infuriated by the fact that Rose would even consider breaking the arranged marriage for the sake of superficial, what they would consider, temporary, passionate love for Jack. They would look at that and they would be absolutely disgusted by it and they would consider Titanic to be a rotten tomato film. They would say, that is the worst movie ever. Shame on that woman for going for what she wanted at the expense of what her mother needed and her future generations required. That union was necessary in order to preserve their bloodline and now rose in a moment of fleeting passion has destroyed it all. Okay, I'm sharing, I'm sharing this parable with you guys for a purpose, okay? I'm sharing this with you to illustrate the difference in the type of society that we live in today, which is a weak group society by comparison to Jesus' society, which is a strong group society. Okay, so the illustration is there for a purpose, okay? If we're going to do ministry as a family, one of the things that we'll need to decide is family to what extent? Is it just going to be a nice buzzword that we say to invite people into the tent only to set them up for failure after their mistakes, runs them face first into the reality that we don't actually mean what we declared? Or are we going to come to a really radical place to where we diminish our own preferences to enlarge the promises of the group to have authentic biblical community and to do ministry as a family together. Because we have to make that shift in our mindsets from being a weak group community to becoming a strong group family. How's this, how's this going for you guys? Is this too much? How many of you guys are really actually ready to take on something like that? Like four people. I see you. Right? But listen, guys. If we're really going to go after the radical invitation of doing ministry together as a family, we have to detoxify a little bit from our current cultural context of being radical individualists, of putting our dreams, our goals, our anointing, our calling upon pedestals, and moving into a place to where we look at your calling, your calling, your goals, your dreams. And we say, you know, before I go after my own individualistic desires, I'm going to prefer my brothers and my sisters. I'm going to, you know, platform and pedestal what God has spoken over your life, even at the expense of my own. Because that's what it means to be a father, and that's what it means to be a mother versus simply being a sibling. That's what it means to be a mom or a dad. To put the dreams, the goals, the desires, and the growth of other people above your own. If you're a parent in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Perhaps if you've had great parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They so faithfully, so consistently sacrificed what they wanted so that you could get what was best for you. And if we're really going to do family with one another, each and every person has to take personal responsibility for that way of life within the context of the ministry group. So that we're saying, man, I am for each other. And this was the way it was for somebody living in Jesus' world. 
And in Jesus' world, there was no group that was more important than the family. And this is why the New Testament writers used family as a metaphor so often is because it describes the exact type of relationship that Christians are called to have with one another. Does this make sense? So I want to say one other thing, and then I'm just going to pass to my wife. I don't know exactly what you want to talk about next, but um, there is. I got, we got quite a bit of notes. See how deep you want to go. But um, So how many of you guys um, have memorized the, um, um, the Lord's Prayer? Right? We all know the Lord's Prayer, right? You guys know it? How's it go? Our Father... Who art in heaven, will be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Right? How many of you guys love that prayer? Such a good prayer, right? Okay. What part of that prayer is about you? Not a single line. Whenever the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. How many of you guys want to learn how to pray well? Right? I mean, everybody's trying to figure out how to do time with God. It's one of the top questions we get asked. How do you do time with God, right? The disciples followed Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, God in the flesh for years, and they finally approached this place where they said, Jesus, can you show us how to do time with God? Can you show us how to pray? Can you show us how to intercede? Can you show us how to have fellowship with the Father? And Jesus said, sure, let me teach you how to pray. None of the prayer is going to be about you, though. Notice he says, our Father. When you pray, what you acknowledge is that every single human being on planet Earth is the image bearer of God. And we all have the same father, and we're all a part of the same family. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what we're reminding our spirit of is that we are called not to do this as an anointed lone ranger, but that we are called to do this kingdom life within the context of a family, with our brothers and sisters, all relating to one another as a family with the same father who is Yahweh. Like every time we pray, we should be reminded of what we've been placed into, which is a family. Our Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Not just give me. When you're praying the, the Lord's Prayer, you're not just asking for God to meet your needs. You're asking for God to meet the needs of the family. Now, we know that, that the daily bread can be a picture of revelation, right? Give us our daily bread. But we're not just asking for the revelation that God has for me as I sit in the class today. We're asking for the revelation that God has for the entire class as we pray today. So when we're praying and we're talking to the Lord before class starts, what we're praying is, God, put the spirit of revelation upon the entire tribe. Don't just give me wisdom so that I can be seen as head and shoulders above everybody else in the group. Don't just give me revelation so I can stand out as the star student. The way that the Lord has asked us to pray is that God would put the spirit of revelation upon the entire student group so that we could all stand out as sons and daughters of the living God, right? 
And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying over every single hungry Christian on planet Earth that they would be fed and nourished and that their empty stomachs would be met with a meal by somebody heeding the call of our same Father. Right? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses. I'm not just repenting of my own personal sin, but I am repenting identificationally on behalf of other Christians that have transgressed the law of love. You guys getting anything out of this? Yeah. I'm praying, God, forgive us. Forgive us. Maybe I personally didn't commit the sin, but if I know of something that's gone wrong with a Christian brother and sister, I'm locking arms with them in the spirit, and I'm asking the Lord for mercy upon the family. Not judging them, not pointing a finger at them, not saying, ah, yeah, found out. They're actually not as good as they claim to be on Facebook. They're bad, they need justice, they need punishment, and they should be kicked out of the family. The Lord's Prayer teaches us a prayer of inclusion is that despite how much our brothers and sisters have transgressed the law of love, we consistently are praying on their behalf and inviting them back into the restoration of the family. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom. What does the kingdom mean? It's all his. It all belongs to him. It's his domain. It's his reign. It belongs to him. Right? The power, what does that mean? He has all authority. It means he's in charge. You have the power, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. He gets all the credit, right? Listen, guys, every single argument in Christian community is over one of those three things. Whose kingdom is it? Whose power is it? And whose glory is it? Who does it belong to? Who has the authority? And who gets the credit? You can trace back every conflict that we have with one another in community over those three things. Who's powerful, who's powerless? Who's getting the credit, who's creditless? Who's in charge, who's not? You guys with me? Yeah? These are the arguments. So I share this with you because I want you to recognize that Jesus so often embodies what it looks like for us to do family as a community, as a ministry group in the Gospels. But what we have to understand is that if we're really going to grab hold of God's desire to create family through ministries, we have to detox a little bit for how we've been conditioned by our own culture to believe that everything that we want comes first over the needs of the group. You, got, you guys ever read Proverbs uh, chapter 6? Um, you, you, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but... It's a really interesting passage of scripture. Proverbs chapter 6 says there are six or seven kinds of people the Lord doesn't like. How's that for a starter? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, right? Proverbs chapter 6, uh, you can look at verse 16, whatever you know translation you have, it'll say something different. But there are six or seven kinds of people that the Lord doesn't like. Number one, those who are arrogant. Number two, those who tell lies. Number three, those who murder. Number four, 
those who make evil plans. Number five, those who are quick to do wrong. Number six, those who tell lies in court. Number seven, those who stir up trouble or divide people in a family. So what, you, what, what we're seeing here, listen guys, the things that the Lord doesn't like are the things that affect the family. Are the things that affect the community. The things that affect the environment and the church family and our brothers and our sisters and that bring division and that bring separation. You know, we see Jesus talking about the devil. In Greek, the word devil is diabolos, which means to divide. Okay, so when we say that Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy, you know what he's after? Your connection with God and your connection with God's body. He wants to sever the hand from the body. He wants to sever the foot from the body because he knows that he can get you to separate from God if he can get you to separate from God's body. I've never met anybody who separated from God who didn't first start by separating from God's body. It seems it's always the natural progression. They isolate themselves from Christian community and eventually they disconnect themselves from Christ himself. Right? Awesome. Okay. So, I'm sure that I have like teed up a ton of talking points or anything you want to share? I mean, obviously developing family and family culture in a culture that is so radically individualized can feel a little overwhelming at times uh, because it's, it causes you to look through such a different lens. But I, there is such a deep reward to going to the, through the battlefield of building a family and building a healthy family culture. And I don't know if we made mention of this uh, in one of our first few days, but um, the Surgeon General uh, a couple of years ago um, made a statement that the that loneliness had become an epidemic in our culture and in our society and that loneliness loneliness was more deadly than obesity times like double or triple that loneliness was more deadly than smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes every day um, that loneliness was killing our our actual like killing people and killing our society and so there is a there is a reward and there is a deep privilege to building family. One, I imagined all a few years ago when we started church planting, like what would be the thing that the president of the United States would call Lyle and I over and say, what the heck are you guys doing there? Like the nation turned an eye towards the church, like what would it be? And I felt like the Lord told me that it was, it was a divorce-free zone, that if we could actually develop a culture where divorce uh, wasn't happening in our church culture, in our city, that our city, like the divorce rate started dropping and uh, kids were actually being raised in uh, homes with two parents, that that would be the thing that would take that, you know, the president of the United States would turn and say, what the heck are you guys doing in Nashville? What's happening there? And that, ha that hasn't happened, but that's the dream on my heart because I think that there's this gaping hole in our society being just longing to be filled with family and longing to be filled with people who actually believe that the fairy tale of family is real. Um, we say, like, the fairy tale is real because, you know, like, I think Hollywood has painted this picture um, that is just this beautiful picture and it's a fairy tale and 
you know, it's the family and the, the prince, and he rides, and he gets the princess, and they live happily ever after into the, into the sunset. Um, and, like, we totally believe that that is absolutely real, and that's absolutely possible. Um, but in every story, there's conflict, and there's tension to get to that place. Um, and there's a battle <laughs> nine times out of ten, and there's loss, and there's all sorts of things that get you to that place of actually building um, building something that the world wants. Uh, the world doesn't want to be Christian because we're just like everybody else, right? Like, we, our relationships fail just the same. Um, our kids are going through hardships just the same. Our financial stability is just the same. Um, we fight. Um, we're rude. We are so quick to isolate ourselves from people who don't think the same way that we do. Um, we kick our weak out. Um, and so it, for us, for Lyle and I, we truly believe that the hope of Jesus is found in the context of family and that you actually can't build anything that the world wants to be a part of aside from it being a family and aside from it looking and feeling like a home. And so there is a great deep reward to going on the battlefield of family and, like, getting your butt kicked in the arena of building you know, culture and family, and and all of that can feel very overwhelming, but for us, like, in, in the seven years that we've gone on this journey, not once has a setback been more discouraging than the reward that is family that we have experienced. Every setback, every time that we've run face first into the reality of, oh, we need a deeper revelation of what what this actually means it's never thrown us off the course of family because the reward of connection has been so sustaining for our lives and um, as we've done this you know within our church context we've seen dozens of couples on the brink of divorce like come back into connection come back into family bring their kids back to church um, and then conversely we've seen people who you know cut themselves off from the family and within years you know their family is struggling you know, they get divorced, they walk away from the Lord, and that's why we fight so hard for community and for the biblical context for community because we truly believe, like, it's the only thing that works, and it's, it's what heaven really looks like, and it's what heaven really feels like. Um, you know, heaven feels like a family, it looks like a family, and if we can have heaven on earth, what heaven on earth looks like is family. You know, that's what it is. And so we know, like, it's a big topic, and we, you know, shotgunned a lot of information at you, but we're going we're gonna to make some space um, for Q&A, and we actually made quite a bit of space for Q&A, because, okay, that's fine. Lyle's going to share something to close. This will be super practical, and we'll do a little question and response. Um, so... You might be asking yourself the question, like, okay, that's great, that's awesome, like, I've heard all the teaching and got all the illustrations, and you've contrasted the cultures and all that stuff, but how do we actually do this? You know, what is one point that we might be able to take away to put into action today to make this community group feel more like a family and not just a ministry, okay? So, here's the one point that you can write down uh, of how to do ministry as a family together, okay? So I see everybody getting their paper ready. It's not going to be super revelatory, but it will be actionable, okay? It is this. Give up your personal preferences for the bigger picture. 
okay? Give up your personal preferences for the bigger picture, all right? So I don't read very many instances in the New Testament where God applauds radical individualism. But as you study through the Bible, I want to point out something to you real quick. The word servant occurs 57 times in the New Testament. Every now and then it refers to the servant of a household. But most of the time the word servant is used to, the, uh, to refer to the role that we're called to assume as members of God's family. Most often when you see the word servant in the New Testament, what it's doing is it's referring to the role that we have as members of God's new covenant family. Okay? Servant. The word itself, serve, occurs 58 times in the New Testament. So if you're not seeing it yet, the New Testament makes it very plain that serving is incredibly important to God. Even if you look at the words of Christ himself, Jesus himself, red letters here, he said, you must become a servant of all. Okay? Can I tell you guys a quick story about my mission school? Real quick, okay? Okay, so when I went to mission school, when I went to mission school, I was a youth pastor. Okay? So I thought that doing ministry was all about being God's man of power for the hour. Right? Like being God's anointed vessel. Like I was going to come in and I was going to preach the house down. The roof would be on fire. People would be falling out in the spirit. I'd give the best four points that they'd ever heard in their lives. My goal, my ambition, my calling, what I felt like I was called to do was to be a traveling itinerant minister who was famous on TBN with books and sermon series and I would sell them and make all kinds of money, and I would dress in fancy suits, and people would give me rides to churches and limousines, okay? That was kind of what I thought, like, ministry, like, I will know that I have arrived when this ministry, I wouldn't have said it like this at the time, is pretty much all about me, and I'm killing it, right? Okay, for some of us in here, we're not admitting it right now, but we're thinking, man, that actually sounds pretty good. I think I could sign up for that style of ministry. Especially after a few weeks with no AC. I'm in. Count me in. Sign me up. Right? And so for me, whenever I went to Mozambique, Africa for the first time, and I sat underneath a tent, just like you guys. Unfortunately, we didn't have padded chairs. So that's one thing you guys do have that I didn't have. But the food there was terrible. We ate the exact same lunch every single day. So before you ever complain about a meal that you get here, I want you guys to know that for three months, I ate one thing every single day for lunch. It was this, rice and beans. And on certain days, it was this, rice, beans, and pebbles. <laughs> Not fruity pebbles. Rocks. That if you bit down too hard, would literally chip your tooth, okay? So no AC. I've seen your rooms. Your rooms are nice by comparison. Let me tell you guys. Okay? You don't have to sleep under mosquito nets here. All right? And so when I arrived... To Pimba, Mozambique, I'm like, this is so far from my limousine, God. Why in the world would you ever send me here? Because I thought ministry was all about me and my calling and my dreams and my anointing and my authority and the miracles I was going to work and the recognition I was going to receive. 
I am called to be a man of God. What are you doing, Lord? All right, and so every single day that I would go into class and the teacher, whoever that was, wouldn't call me out and say, whoa, this is God's anointed vessel. Come on up here. You shouldn't be a student. Teach us. Right? So you guys think this is funny, but you know that, like, you kind of have thought that at times. Like, man, I'm just as anointed. When are they going to let me talk? Nobody's laughing right now. Everybody's afraid to admit this. I know the scripture. I got revelation. I got a blog. Right? Why hasn't anybody called me out? And so every day, see, people thought the Holy Spirit was touching me. I was in travail. I was in agony. I would come up to the front, and I would pray, and I would ask the Lord, God, please, find a way to send me back home. Please. I was low-key praying for malaria. I was like, Lord, this is terrible. Isn't it interesting how we get so addicted to environments where we feel powerful? And we refuse to associate ourselves with people. And we refuse to stay in the context of an environment where people don't acknowledge our arrogance. See, that's a little indicator that you're at home, that you're in family. When people don't acknowledge you and empower your arrogance, but treat you like a normal human being, and say, please, sit down. Right? You ain't nothing special, man. I've been, I changed your diapers. Which is why Jesus says a prophet is without honor in his home country. Listen, guys, you should have a home country. You should have a family. You should have a place where you can go where nobody thinks you're a big deal. And people are like, you're just a normal dude. You're just a regular guy. You're just a regular girl. You ain't nothing special. Sit down, dude. That right there is a good indicator that you might be in family, right? But for me, I was in agony. I hated this. And uh, we're talking about being a servant, right? So before I left, before I went to Mozambique, I told you I was a youth pastor. I was starting to travel a little bit. I was getting words of knowledge, and I was sharing them publicly with the church. And people were like, wow, you're a young prophet. You know, like people were calling me out, saying all these great things about me, honoring me, acknowledging the anointing. You know, really, really stroking the ego and puffing me up a little bit. I was pretty excited about what I was going to experience when I went to Africa. I was like, I'm going to heal the sick, raise the dead. Everybody else is going to know, I am anointed. I'm going to be the standout star student, you know. I got there, guess how many people got healed? Zero. Guess how many opportunities I got to preach? Zero. Guess how many opportunities I got to stand up and show off my great anointing? Zero. And every time that I thought that I had that opportunity, it was like God would just squash it. And then even when I thought I did good, people were like, cool. I was like, God, this is terrible. I hate this place. And people thought I was being touched by the Holy Spirit. Like, oh, look at him. I was laying in a puddle of my own snot. Begging the Lord to take me home. You know? But listen, guys, I learned something in a puddle of my own snot, which is this. Great breakthrough is always preceded by great brokenness. 
in the kingdom, it's always brokenness under breakthrough. What God was doing, he was breaking me. He was breaking me down completely. And I was laying there saying, Lord, but I'm a young prophet. And right before I left, my mom gave me this necklace, and it had this cross on it. And I looked it up, and it was an ancient cross. It was an ancient symbol for a prophet. And it was considered a prophet's cross. And so I wore this thing proud. You know, it was like my chain. I wore it outside of my shirt. I'm like, that's right. That's me. I'm a young prophet. And one morning, I was assuming the position of the puddle of tears. And God spoke to me. And he said, you are nothing except for who I tell you that you are. And I tell you that you are a servant to humanity. And then he said, now go take that cross off of your neck and never put it back on again. And I, got, I left the class, I took it off, I went and put it in my bag, and I never wore it again. And I was so distraught because I felt like I was losing my identity. And I want you guys to know something. That when you're really stepping into family, like when you're really stepping into family, it's going to feel a little bit like you're losing your identity. Because of your singleness and your uniqueness and all of the things that you use to set yourself apart from the crowd, some of that just has to fade away and fade back. And you've got to mold in with the whole and you've got to be willing to prefer other people's visibility over your own. And it's going to feel a little bit like a loss of identity. Because you're going to get all of those things that you use to make yourself feel special ripped beneath your feet. And that's why family has a cost. And that's why we have to count the cost of family in such a way that says it's not about me, but it's about the whole. So I thought that story was relevant. So that's where we'll end. And I have more stories on that, but we don't have time. So you guys will just have to come back and staff. So, um, we got about, what do you think, 15 minutes? You guys have any questions that you'd like for us to attempt to respond to? I can repeat it in the mic if you want. I, I didn't hear everything. Did you hear everything she said? Okay, you were. So, she, uh, she alluded to when we, were, we talked about yesterday the f and the day before, the, the first group of 10 people that moved to Nashville um, and they kind of ended up scattering, and some, uh, you know, some are away from the Lord, and she just wants to know, if we could do it all differently, what would we do uh, differently to maybe see that, that thing not happen? For myself, honestly, right, absolutely. <laughs> Allison is saying she was the reason why some of them scattered. It's true. That's true. Um, I would say a few reasons. But first, I'll say this. I'll take 100% responsibility myself because I think that's what leaders do. And not because I feel guilty to, to, uh, to do so, but because I really do believe that it's true. I think a lot of what I was doing in that season of my life, despite the brokenness and transformation that had taken place, by and large, it was still about me. It was still about me, my vision, rather the vision of the whole. You know, and really including other people in the conversation 
as to what God was speaking to us to do altogether. And I think I was trying to independently lead a little bit too strongly and then expecting everybody to follow without a vote or without a conversation or without connection and without relationship. So I think, you know, declaring family is one thing, uh, and I've said this a few times, but doing family is different because it requires you to slow down and let other people communicate their desires and their dreams and their directives from the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the reasons why it didn't work is because we did not make space for that. And I really, as the leader, kind of bulldozed over a lot of people's input and said, nope, this is what God's saying, so therefore this is what we're doing. If you don't like it, you can bounce, right? And there's a lot of leaders who lead that way. Some of them lead very successfully that way. But I might be as courageous as to say, that's a team, but it's not a family. And to contrast that a bit, I do believe in apostolic authority. I do, be, I do believe in there being a head of the household. I do believe in a father of the house. I do believe in a patriarch. And I think that at times you've just got to make decisions that you feel are best for the whole, even when people have contrary opinions. But you do so at such a pace that allows people to feel connected and not bulldozed. And so I think that with a family, you have to really have a high, high, high value for connection. And at that day and at, at that time, my value wasn't for connection. My value is for submission. Right? Okay, so whenever the disciples were all following Jesus, Jesus' goal was not to disciple them to a place of submission. Jesus' goal was to disciple them to a place of friendship. That, that, that's pretty intense. Maybe not for you guys, but for me. Like, you know, Jesus didn't say, oh, you've become so mature, you finally submitted to me. You've, you've become compliant. When I say jump, you say how high. Yeah, that's like the first level of, of discipleship. That is not Jesus' ultimate goal for your relationship with him, that you would just be doing every single exact thing that he says as soon as he says it. Now, I have a strong value for immediate obedience. We've talked about that this week. But listen, the word Israel means one who wrestles with God. Yahweh is the only God because he is the God of all gods. He is the ultimate God, the all-powerful God. Yahweh is the only God that invites his followers to argue with him. It's the only one, right? Argue with uh, Buddha, what happens? He just goes silent. Argue with Muhammad, what happens? You get decapitated. Right? Argue with any other God, and it's just, there's no connection. There's no relationship. There's no journey of discipleship and connection. But with Jesus, it is so different. And I think that is the exact thing that I missed entirely in the beginning. Because I looked at, I looked at leadership as being a top-down infrastructure. Like, so I'm, I'm leading, you're following. I say, you go, right? And I think as an extreme response to these top-down models of leadership, people have created the, this type of leadership, right? Like the leader's at the bottom, and everybody votes and kind of tells the leader, and the leader just kind of serves, and he's just there to be a doormat and just get walked over. Uh, I don't think either one of those models are right. I think it's more like this. So I do think that there is a leader. I think God calls a leader. I think God anoints a leader. I think God gives leaders vision. 
He does. And, it, and it's not two visions because that would be division, which is where we get Diablos, right? Right? And so there's one vision. There's the leader with the vision. And then, yes, we're following our leadership. We're following our spiritual parents. But we're being led in such a way that we're going together. We're moving together. You know, there's connection. There's relationship. And we're doing it together. I think that's what I did wrong. I know that's a long response. But I think that's what I did wrong personally. Totally. Did everybody hear that? She, uh, a lot of young people, that church plant in this season go for a more decentralized kind of church leadership model, which means like a flat leadership model or like a round table. So something where everybody has, is looking eye to eye and everybody gets the same uh, weight and, and voting power. Um, we, so in a, in a ping pong from, this is the learning curve, right? So in the ping pong from what you, sh what you asked about from that sense of like, okay, submission-based leadership, we ping pong to a more decentralized style leadership uh, model. Um, the only problem with that is that we're the mom and dad and we're the ones that give, especially loud, gives the account before heaven for the people that we're leading, not necessarily the other people that we've empowered to lead alongside with us. Um, no discipleship truly happens in that kind of a context because everybody's so busy carrying the weight of the family that the mom and dad should carry. It's like um, if a family has 22 children and like the oldest six kids end up helping raise the, the younger, you know, six kids. Uh, yeah, I get, I get that, you know, but for, you have to acknowledge capacity and, and the proper, uh, like the proper way of the family, which is the mom and dad take the brunt of the responsibility. It's not that the older kids don't help raise and disciple the younger kids. It's just their voice and their weight doesn't matter as much as what mom and dad, and it does matter as much. That was bad language, but it, it doesn't have the same weight as mom and dad's because of what they're sacrificing in order to care for the whole of the family. Um, so what we noticed is that when we did that model, it lasted for about uh, a year and a half. We had a uh, deep friendship, but not family, because um, most everybody who is a part of that leadership team is not with us any longer. Um, we had deep friendship, and we got we connected really well with one another, um, but we didn't have forward motion. So there was not a lot of discipleship that happened uh, in that context, and there wasn't any vision tackling uh, with that kind of structure. Uh, I do believe, though, that as the organization grows, you empower leaders that are way better at you than you at things. Like, we have leaders, we mentioned this on our team, that are so much better at church planting than we are. Um, better speakers than I am, for sure. Lyle's, for sure, the best uh, speaker on our team. But better speakers than me, better disciple makers than I am. Uh, and, and I'm super comfy with that because they understand that I'm the spiritual mom. And so there's this safety and this sense of covering that happens uh, for them as they venture out and as they tackle what God's called them to do within the context of our family. So, yeah, we've tried it. It just doesn't work. So, at least for us. And one of the things you mentioned, which I think is super key, is biblical model, right? Because that's what we're looking for. That's what we're all, I'm sure that's what your friends are looking for, and we're all looking for the biblical model of, of church government or the biblical model of what it looks like to lead an organization, right? 
And uh, unfortunately, I've studied this at length myself. Unfortunately, you cannot really point to one clear-cut model of leadership in the Bible and say, this was the exact way because there's always opportunities by looking at the way church was led in different early church cities to argue them, right? And so you have Ephesians 4, right? You have the apostolic model of like, okay, God's raising up one person with one vision. And there's some really good things uh, with that model in that you can do things quickly. But there's also bad things because there's low accountability for that one person. So if they slip up, if they make a mistake, you know, it may ruin the entire family, right? Well, the oldest the oldest model of uh, church government that I am aware of is uh, would be an Episcopalian style uh, of church government, uh, which would be more of a elder-led, you know. So there is a team, but there is a first among equals. So there is somebody who takes the brunt of responsibility, uh, but there is a team. So there's high accountability, there's high connectivity, there's high communication, and things happen within the context of a team on behalf of the whole family. There's also another model, which would be um, more of a, I think it's more of like a Presbyterian model. And it would be considered to be a congregationalist model. And so then in that model, the people lead, the people vote. What we're doing right now at Legacy is we're doing a hybrid. We're literally doing a hybrid of all three. So we're saying, hey, look, we acknowledge Ephesians chapter 4. God is very clear about the anointing, the appointing of the gifts of the fivefold ministry. And so we're going to go after raising up apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers in our environment. But we're also going to have elders. So it's not going to be singular led. We're going to do a hybrid. So we're going to have elders. We are going to have things that we vote on. We're going to have a, a, a one team that will oversee things like finance and compensation. And we're going to do one team that oversees things like strategy and direction. And so then that way there is some checks and balances that are taking place, right? And then on the other hand, we're also going to have a congregationalist element and that we're going to look out to the greater congregation to ask for the appointment of elders and deacons in the same way that the early church did in the book of Acts whenever the apostles said, listen, we can't sit around waiting tables all afternoon. We've got to devote ourselves to, the, the, to prayer and to the study of the word. Choose for yourselves, right? So there's a biblical precedent set there that the congregation is empowered. They say, choose for yourselves, you know, men who are full of the Holy Spirit and appoint them over you to lead you as elders within the environment. And so we've just tried to create a hybrid model. I'd be so happy to share the resource with you or with your friends if you'd like it. Just shoot me a DM. I'd be happy to shoot you a link. I actually have a, uh, a PDF of a, of a book that takes about probably 30 minutes to read and, and would be a tremendous, uh, it's been a tremendous help to us. Yes, I grew up as a pastor's kid. That's a good, how do you manage quality time with your kids and how do you manage quality time with your church? You know, I think, you know, actually to let you guys into a, a moment of our lives, and you, I know you've got some on this as well, but like uh, like last night we were eating dinner. Like we did the um, fire starters, kids ministry, right? We did that last night together. It was amazing. It was awesome. Kids are so epic. And um, we, we, we went out to eat afterwards, and uh, we're just hanging out, having dinner. And we were just talking about, honestly, this exact thing. 
you know, because I've been gone for like three weeks, basically, uh, which I detest, right? So I went to Korea, and then we came back, and we went to New York. I was in a mission trip to Korea, pastors gathering in New York, and then we came out here. So in the last three weeks, I've probably got like three full days with my kids. I hate that, you know, I hate that. But, you know, um, what we understand is this, is it's not about the amount of time. It is about the connection. It's about the quality of the connection, which will refer back to something we mentioned, I think, the second day, which is the two questions that connection requires. One is, will you be there for me? And two is, am I good enough for you? And so our gauge as far as for connection and quality time with our church and with our kids we want the answer to those two questions to be a resounding yes from from one another first from our kids next and from our church third right and so for us we think there's a big big value and a big big element of obeying God by seeing one another as spouses as our first ministry but also tempering that by not allowing family to become an idol. Because I think family's become such a hot topic of conversation today that it's right there on the borderline of a potential idol for some people. And an idol is anything you have to check with before you say yes to God. Right? And so, sure, God speaks to me. God speaks to Allison. Sure, we're going to check with each other in the sense that we're going to have a conversation but the checking is not about whether or not we're going to obey God the checking is what do we need to do to stay connected while we obey God see what I'm saying so it's all about connection with each other connection with our kids and connection with our church as we journey um, and but also that's why the village the family it's that's the realest thing in the world so um yeah, for me, it's hard for my kids not to become the center of everything that I do and everything that I think about. Um, so I actually have to really spend a lot of time in prayer for me to not like just become totally consumed with our kids and say no to doing anything like this and no to you know leaving ever. Um, and just really be gentle with, with the voice of the Lord. But yeah, as long as my kids and I can sense in my kids that they can, and our church, that they can answer those two questions, like will we be there for them and are, are we good enough for them, then we feel really comfortable about whatever pace we're running at. Um, our team is pretty honest with us, and they'll just tell us, like, hey, uh, it feels like you care about accepting invitations in this season a little bit more than you care about helping us build uh, you know, vision, this vision, your vision in this season, if that ever comes up, then it's like every trip gets canceled, right? Because our primary, you know, our primary uh, heart is to make sure that we steer the things that God's given us to steward well. He's given us two kids to steward really well, and he's given us a church community to steward well. Um, so, and then same with the kids. If the kids were ever like, sneaking out of the house or like teenagers and doing all sorts of weird stuff, then it's a pretty good indicator to me that they don't feel like I'm going to be there for them or they don't feel good enough for me because, and then in which case you clear the schedule and you make, you make whatever, whatever efforts you need to, but we're not quite there yet because they're two and they're four. Um, we live with my parents who I'm pretty sure my kids like more than they like me. So it's kind you know, it's kind of a, a sweet season um, for that as well. 
but the village is real. Surrounding yourself with people that can help you raise your kids with you, alongside you, so that when you might need to do something, they don't feel like they're missing out on love, affirmation, affection from healthy moms and dads. So uh, I, I think I just, my, nat my natural temperament is I probably overthink things internally, but I don't necessarily overthink things in practice. I kind of just go with my gut and with whatever the Lord's saying. Um, the world it has so many deep and big needs. Uh, when I transitioned from, hey, are, are we going to, I mean, we were, I was literally rescuing kids from human trafficking, which is what I felt like m the deepest part of my heart wanted to do with my life long term. I wanted to help kids and I wanted to help um, oppressed women most specifically. And so I was like, this is, you know, this is my, this is what I'm going to give my life to. This, I feel like this could be super cool. And then somehow the Lord's like, and we're here in ministry. And we've kind of battled together back and forth what that transition was, uh, why, you know, why did we end up where we, where we ended up. And the, for us, we just simply feel like the church and I, I recognize I'm speaking to a room full of missionaries or people who have a heart to reach the lost and, and go. And so please hear it gently. But we genuinely, for us, felt like the church was the best vehicle for actually serving the oppressed, serving the poor, uh, helping the lost. The church is a massive movement. And if you can get a church activated, government can't touch it. Like there's something about like the church and the entity that is the local and global church, a unified front to go after uh, rescuing the oppressed and serving the oppressed and, and the poor. We just felt like if we, could, if we could be part of helping activate the church, we're all in for it. It's one thing for me, like I'm American, so I, being a part of the American government, U.S. government, social work would just be, it's just not the unified front needed to actually do the work of the gospel. The only way that you can do long-lasting gospel work is through gospel people, which is and not, not saying that the government can't help. The government is a tool, um, but we truly felt like for us. And so once I got that for me, that was a vision that God put in my heart. That doesn't have to be the vision that God puts in your heart. Um, that doesn't have to be what he's saying to any of you. But for us, we were like, okay, if we could get the church activated across the globe, like that's a unified front like never before, uh, we, could actually do, we could actually do this stuff. I know you asked her, but it's okay if I respond too. So, hey, have you ever seen the movie Amazing Grace? I want to encourage you to watch that movie, okay? I'll actually encourage all of you guys to watch that movie because it's phenomenal. So it is the story of William Wilberforce. Have you guys ever heard who William Wilberforce is? He is the guy, he was an abolitionist, and he abolished the transatlantic slave trade. So incredible social worker in that sense as an abolitionist. And there is a scene in that movie that is so beautiful. Every time I watch that movie, I cry. Because for years and years and years, as I was going after becoming an abolitionist, there was a constant tension in my heart to doing ministry and going into government. Like legit. I told one of my friends in Africa, I was like, I'm going to try to be the flipping president of the United States. <laughs> you know? 
and I was thinking legitimately, you guys, I was thinking about joining the military for this purpose alone so that I could pioneer into government because I thought, man, I'll be such, I'll be so much more a favorable candidate if I have served a season in the armed forces, right? So in the movie, you have to watch this movie now. In the movie, William Wilberforce gets encountered by the Holy Spirit. Now, they don't go into great detail, and he's not like, you know, charismatic by any means. But he gets encountered by the Holy Spirit, and he's spending his days like lounging out in the field, looking up at the sky, worshiping Jesus, right? And then one afternoon, he is visited by these abolitionists, and they bring these chains and these fetters and these, like, um, you know, handcuffs, like these, uh, I mean, not like handcuffs you'd see today, but like very archaic, very harsh handcuffs, right? And they sit them down in the midst of their dinner, and then he's like, I'm going to be a man of God. And, uh, and they're like, no, be a man of politics, right? And then somebody speaks up and says, be both. And so I really think that it's absolutely 100% possible for you to do both. Like, I don't think that you have to choose one or the other with the Lord oftentimes because I think the Holy Spirit is so good at offering a third option. I, I, it is so rare, I, I, in my opinion, it is, now, sometimes we put the pressure on ourselves to choose option one or option two. But I believe that the Holy Spirit is so dynamic and so faithful to show up with option three. Like, my pastor taught me that opportunities usually come in threes. And I believe that that's true. And so just look for a third option here. I don't think it's one or, I don't think it's A or B. I think there is a C option. And maybe, maybe. Do both, but also I think what Allison said so well, and, and even a summarize of both of our responses is, like, seek God, the rest will take care of itself, right? But whatever way that you feel is best for you to advance the Great Commission and fulfill the Word of God over your life, do that. It, whatever, whatever the best way for you to do that, do that. If that's social work, do that. If that is being a missionary, do that. Whatever the best way for you to advance the mission of Jesus through your life is, do that. Of course, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we all know the commandment, honor your mother and your father. You're going to have a long life. Things are going to go well with you. That's a commandment that Christ very much upholds. So it truly is a, a spiritual reality that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places alongside one another as the family of God, brothers and sisters. But then there's also another reality that they are your parents, right? And they are well deserving of honor. And I think it's amazing that your parents are Christians and that they're willing to go with you on the journey of following Holy Spirit for the destiny of the family as a whole. That's beautiful. I mean, congratulations, because most people don't have that opportunity, right? And so I think that something you're alluding to is something that's actually a great challenge for me. Okay, my parents are pastors. We're pastors as well. And it kind of feels like I'm the patriarch of the family. But my dad is only 54 years old, okay? So I'm 34. He had me when... My mom had me when he was 20, you know, 20 years. I know for you guys probably feels like, whoa, 54, that's old, man. You know, but 20 years is not really that big of a span. I have friends who are 54 years old. Like we hang out, right? Like I pastor them. 
And so that's my dad's age. So that is a weird transition of coming to a place of like, Dad, let me tell you what you should do. Or, Dad, here, I have a word of the Lord over the family. Dad, I have a dream. Dad, I have a directive. And I think there's something in, I can't remember if it's James or Second Peter, but there is something in, I'll have to, I'd have to look it up. And if you're really interested in it, DM me and I'll send it back. I'll look it up. But is, is the way in which you approach a parent is so important. So important. It's not about what you say, it's how you say it. Right? So it's not about the message, it's about the method. So when you're coming with a heart bursting at the seams of love and humility, anything you have to say will be listened to. So it's all about the atmosphere that your words create, not the words themselves. How many of you guys know you can say the right thing, create the wrong atmosphere? Right? So if your parents feel or experience you in such a way that you are demeaning them, that you're putting them down, or you're insulting, you know, their experience, because the reality is no matter how much experience you have, simply by time, they have more in certain areas, right? And so if you can come in and kind of give them an honor sandwich, I'm not, I'm not always the greatest champion of the honor sandwich because I think sometimes you just need to say what needs to be said. But when it comes to your elders and when it comes to your parents, I think an honor sandwich is a great strategy. You know what an honor sandwich is, right? So, you know, you give the honor up front, you give the honor at the end, in the middle, you give the meat of the message. So maybe it's something that you feel like, okay, going to be a little tough for my parents. Just, Mom and Dad, listen, I love you so much. I just want to honor you and tell you how grateful I am that God has put me in this family as your daughter. You guys are incredible. Hey, I have a thought, and I want to bring it to you as an appeal, not as a rebuke. And so the Bible is very clear. You do not rebuke an older person harshly, but you appeal to them. And so I think one of the ways that you can make an appeal oftentimes is through a series of questions. Right? You ask them, hey, guys, what would you feel about? Fill in the blank. Hey, how would you feel, you know, if I suggested that we as a family do this? And then what you do is you champion connection in such a way that your parents don't feel insulted. They feel honored. And that you let them know, listen, guys, I'm feeling like God is giving me some insight as a leader within the context of this family. But I want you to know what I care about most. It's not our pace. It's our connection. It's not our direction. It's our connection. I'm your daughter. You're my dad. You're my mom. I love you so much. I don't want to do anything that would disrespect, dishonor, or disconnect us from one another. Because that's paramount for me. This is what I'm feeling. And you can even do some of what we do with each other. Is you can share your emotions. This feels pretty scary for me. I'm going to be honest with you. Because I feel like I got some words here. That you guys may not necessarily champion right away. But I feel pretty strong there from the Lord. I feel a little scared about it. But is it okay if I share it with you? So it's all about the approach. It's all about the approach. Okay, we got to go. Love y'all so much. You're amazing.